thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to your favourite science show, The Naked Scientists, bringing you the latest in science, technology, medicine and more. I'm Julia Ravy and this week it's time to put your questions to a panel of excellent experts in one of our Q&A shows. In this episode, we are going to be investigating what supermassive black holes do, strategies for coping with anxiousness and just how dog became man's best friend. We love to get to the bottom of your queries and questions. So if there is something you've always wanted to know about tech, medicine, engineering, or any other sciencey subject, head to thenakedscientist.com, pop to our Ask a Question tab, and fire away. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Before we start crunching through conundrums, let's meet this week's panel. First up, we have mental health and well-being researcher Olivia Reams. Olivia is based at the University of Cambridge, where she has studied anxiety and depression, as well as understanding the best coping strategies to help people thrive. These methods are documented in her book, The Instant Mood Fix. Olivia, as we are just coming out of January... What are some methods for lifting our mood during the winter months? One thing that I would say is turning to mindfulness meditation and exercise. Uh, Something else that I would encourage people to do is to think of how you can incorporate a dose of positive emotion into your life. So a dose of positive emotion that can come from something that gives you pleasure that you enjoy whether that's going outside for a walk in nature. And by the way, being in nature is so good for our mental health and well-being. So that's one thing. But also, how can you get a dose of positive emotion in the home? Well, you know, a practical tip is to get into the kitchen. Cooking is great. Trying a new recipe, it changes how you feel about yourself. You know, when you are successful with a dish, this can boost your self-esteem. So these are all small steps that you can take to boost your well-being in these cold, dark winter months. Yeah, I know. I definitely try and like get myself outside when it's light and try and see the sun. But I love that about cooking a meal, especially a nice warm meal on a cold night. It sounds wonderful to me. So next up, we have Professor of Paleogenomics at the University of Oxford, Gregor Larson. Gregor's research focuses on how we have evolved alongside other animals like chickens, pigs and dogs. Gregor, paleogenomics is a bit of a mouthful. What does that mean? Yeah, so there's genomics, which is the sequencing of genomes, which every organism on Earth has a genome. And paleogenomes, uh, paleogenomics is just trying to extract and amplify and sequence the genomes from things that have been dead for a while. So as soon as you die, your DNA starts falling apart, just like the rest of you. And so what we are able to do is go and find some archaeological specimens, paleontological specimens, and many museum specimens. And we're able to isolate the DNA, usually from bone and teeth, but from just about any other substrate as well, including coprolites, which is kind of like half fossilized poo, but uh, hair, plant remains, seeds, all kinds of things. And by extracting the DNA, we're able to then sequence that and compare it against other living and dead populations to to look to see what changes took place through time and space in order to try and piece that whole picture of evolution together over the last, say, 50 to 100,000 years. Wow. I didn't think we'd be talking about fossilized poo, but here we are. So on to another evolution researcher now, but this time 
it's out of this world. Astrophysicist Becky Smethurst, also based at the University of Oxford, is with us. Becky studies the co-evolution of galaxies and their supermassive black holes and shares physics news on her YouTube channel, Dr. Becky. Becky, this may be a weird question, but what is your favourite black hole and why? I think I'd have to say TON618, which is a very poetic name, Mm -hmm. I know. And TON618, TON618, is the biggest supermassive black hole we've ever found. It is 68 billion times heavier than the sun. And the really cool thing about it is we think it's reaching the biggest that supermassive black holes can ever grow to, which is a really weird concept for people to wrap their heads around because people picture black holes like the endless hoovers of the universe. But I like to say that black holes are less like hoovers and more like couch cushions. They're just very unassuming. You know, you're not dragged towards them or pulled towards them. But if you lose anything down there, it's gone for good. (laughs) That's how I sort of describe a black hole. The couch is well and truly saturated. By that (laughs) point where you're like, you're sitting on it, it's lumpy and you're like, oh my goodness, there's so much stuff down here, but still, I can't get anything out of it. I can't get anything out. And finally on the show today, from all the way across the Atlantic, is conservation biologist and author Thor Hansen. Thor shares incredible insights into all things wild and how our activities are influencing the creatures around us, documented in his new book, Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squids. Thor, what is a plastic squid? Oh, the plastic squid is a marvelous story that comes to us from the Gulf of California, where there has been a traditional fishery targeting the humble squid, the jumbo squid, a a squid that can grow to four, five, six feet, so almost two meters in size. But a few years ago, after a series of climate-driven marine heat waves swept through that area, people stopped catching these squid. They just disappeared. And everyone assumed that, like so many creatures on this planet, the squid had responded to climate change by moving elsewhere and looking for the conditions they're used to. And it wasn't until some scientists went down to do some surveys that they realized that the squid were still there. And instead of responding to the increase in temperature by fleeing, they had responded with what biologists call plasticity. The squid were living half as long. They were eating different foods. They were reproducing in half the time. And under those constraints, their bodies were reaching only a fraction of their previous size, too small to bite upon the hooks that fishers had previously been using to catch them. Wow. So plastic in the sense of they've adapted to their environment, not like a plastic bag. Exactly. (laughs) So plastic meaning they are flexible. Wow. Small squids from us changing the planet. So on our Q&A shows, we like to keep you all on your toes with a guessing game. This is, of course, our mystery sound. I will play you a clip and throughout the show provide you with some clues as to who or what is making that noise. So let the tape roll. So that that is the mystery sound for this week. (laughs) Becky, do you have a clue of what that might be? I think it sounds like the Velociraptor's like head cavity noise that they make in the Jurassic Park film when they 3D print it and he like, and Sam Neill uses it to like take away the Velociraptors. That's what it sounds like to me. But then Velociraptors became chickens. So it could be a chicken. It could be a chicken. Oh, well, we'll have more clues throughout the show. And let's see what that sound ends up being. So Olivia, we're coming to you first to talk a little bit about coping with anxiety. In the UK, it's estimated that around 8 million people live with some form of anxiety disorder. What has your research found to be some of the biggest causes of anxiety? When it comes to what can increase somebody's risk or the causes of anxiety, there are many different factors ranging from your uh, environment. So for example, your work environment, if you're dealing with stress at work, this can increase anxiety, but also your relationships. Do you feel like you have fulfilling, meaningful relationships, a support system? So people that can support you when you're going through tough times, this is really helpful for mental health. And if you feel isolated and lonely, this can also be linked to poor mental health. When we're looking at anxiety, another thing that is important is your early environment. So the way that your parents raised you, 
And also there's a genetic component. So you can have a predisposition. And then the way that a mental health condition gets triggered in some cases is that you have this predisposition and then along comes a life event, an activating life event. So that could be maybe a stressful situation at work or maybe a divorce or a relationship breakdown. So when you add this to a predisposition, then this can be enough to create fertile ground for anxiety. Your book, The Instant Mood Fix, gives some quick remedies for dealing with anxiety and stress. What are some of the strategies which could help people cope with these states? So when we're thinking about anxiety, something that a lot of people with anxiety have in common is this tendency to focus on worst case scenarios. So what I encourage people to do in my coaching practice, when people come to me for help, is I ask them to track their worries, write down what is bothering you at the moment, and then write down what your feared consequence is. And when we start logging them and coming back to them to see if they you know, manifested or not, we see that most of the time they don't. So it gives us a lot of hope, a lot of control over the situation. So that's one thing that I would suggest for anxiety. And John asked, what is one tip that can help someone get over the hump of starting to exercise when they have anxiety? My one top tip would be do it badly. And this is for anyone struggling to get started on anything. And let me give you the context for that. So many times people aim for perfection. Perfectionism is getting in the way. They can't get started until they've got all of the equipment they need to get started, until they found the perfect gym to exercise at. And all of this contributes to delays and procrastination. So the antidote to that is to do it badly. Just jump right in without thinking about the outcome, without worrying about how it's going to turn out. Just put your blinkers on and jump straight into it. And I've had many, many people try this out and and come back to me with, with positive feedback that it helped them to start taking risks. Things that used to be anxious became exciting. You know, for example, getting started on a report for work or getting started with exercising even it got them to be unstuck. So do it badly. And my question to people listening to this would be, if you were to start using this motto today, how would your life change? I love that. I love that. Do it badly. That's what I'm going to do going forward for sure. From baffling British weather. Sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. To looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the wild ways animals are adapting to climate change, exploring space with James Webb and how to beat procrastination. In the meantime, here's the next part of our mystery sound game. First, we heard this delightful noise. The first clue that we have here is, I'm currently fourth and on the rise. Thor, do you have any idea what this might be? Fourth and on the rise? Oh my, I I really don't. This sounds like a sports question. Maybe we should should, uh, pass it across the pond. Do you guys have any idea of what we're talking about? I think I know. Do you? <laughs> I think, well, I, is it wind on Mars? If it's fourth and on the rise, because Mars is currently rising in the morning sky at the minute and no. it's fourth from the sun. No. And they recorded wind on Mars recently with the NASA InSight mission. Well, we'll see at the end of the show, won't we? Oh. That is a very <laughs> yes. Okay, Greg, we're coming over to you now with some questions about dogs, which is always fun. Yay. The top household pet in the UK is a dog. Known as man's best friend, sorry to the cat lovers. I'm also a cat and dog lover, so I can I can empathise. Fossil data has shown dogs have been our companions for a very long time. Gregor, just how long have we had dogs as part of our pack? Yeah, that's a question that we're all trying to answer. We can give you bounds. We have a, an upper bound, 
that we would say is probably around say 30, 35,000 something. I think that's kind of getting anything further than that is maybe a bit ridiculous. And I'm a little, a little bit suspicious of that number. And then a lower bound of maybe 14, 15,000, something like that. So somewhere in that period, there is a pack of wolves somewhere that goes from being very wolfy to being very much associated with people. And you get this emergent product of this changing relationship between people and wolves, which results in what we would now recognize as dogs. And so that precedes any other animal with which we've made these amazing relationships by many, many thousands of years. Did all the dogs we have today come from one pack millennia ago? Another good question, uh, to which I will give you an ambiguous answer to, because that's how we that's how we roll. There is some evidence which is it's probably it's looking like there was. We know it was gray wolves. We're not entirely sure which population of gray wolves or where they were at the time. We know that there were other populations of gray wolves that at some point contributed some of the DNA. Whether that was a completely independent process or not is an open question, but it was likely to be one primary source and then maybe a couple secondary tertiary sources, something like that. And what was it about these dog ancestors that made us join forces? Yeah, there's two schools of thought on this, really. There is the school of thought, which is that it was very human-led, very directed. We saw these wolves on the landscape and we thought, yes, either they look cute or we can think of them as somehow being a really good partner in crime. So let's steal a couple of puppies from a den, bring them over to the human campsite, uh, maybe even suckle them, take care of them, tame them. And if they started to become a bit unruly, then we can knock them on the head or send them away. But if they ones that were quite nice, then we stuck, let them stick around. And then they started to produce more tame versions of themselves. And through that whole process, you get dogs. I am not a fan of that particular theory. I think that that's not how anything actually works within evolutionary biology or within the way in which we interact with the natural world. And instead, I think it had a lot more to do with as an emergent process whereby you had a pack of wolves and a group of people and they started to form a kind of loose accidental alliance that then over a very long period of time started to become where both populations started to become more reliant upon one another. Now, the precise mechanisms that were driving this, there's a lot of different theories about that. There was one that was just published last year, which is really interesting, which is that in the very northern climes where humans are, we struggle really to eat exclusively meat, but wolves don't have a problem with this. And so if we were hunting a lot of mammoths at a, kind of, at a very high step environment in Siberia or in the Arctic, there would be a whole lot of excess protein that we wouldn't necessarily be able to consume, but those wolves would have been. And so they would have been attracted to us. We wouldn't have minded necessarily having them around because of a variety of other things that they could have offered us, including things like sentries or help with hunting or a number of other processes. But it's hard to recreate that. There's a lot more theories than there are answers at the moment. But I tend to want to think that the idea that it was much more of an emergent accidental process is the one that we should be asking the questions about rather than just insisting that we grabbed a couple of cute puppies and then we were done with it. <laughs> David asked if our pet dogs are more intelligent than other wild animals. Did we domesticate dogs to be good boys? Yeah. So right away, that question always bugs me because as soon as you use the word domesticate as a verb like that, where it's like we did something to something else and it requires, it sort of implies this intentionality of the whole thing. And of course, I'm sure the rest of the panel would agree. Intelligence is such a plastic term, right? It's kind of, it's a super goofy, amorphous thing. And it's very context specific. So there are the dogs within a human context who are very good at recognizing our gestures, uh, recognizing us, uh, recognizing commands, they are going to be smart within that particular context. And there are wolves who are smart in their own context, in their own environments where they don't do that, but it doesn't make them any more smart or more dumb. And any kind of very widely distributed species is very good at being distributed precisely because it's good at taking advantage of, of the, the local conditions in which it finds itself in. So to uh, the short answer to that question would be, yes, dogs are um, smart and are good boys precisely because they're here. It's already sort of, it's a redundant question because we wouldn't have them otherwise. Yeah, I know. I think sometimes we think because someone can't add up or do calculus that they're not smart. And it's like, no, that's human smart. Just because they don't do maths doesn't mean they're not smart. Yes, agree with you there. Becky, we're coming on to you now for some supermassive black hole chat. Well, you have to leave me. I'm still reeling from the fact that chihuahuas will have descended from wolves. So I've never really stopped <laughs> to true. think about it before. I know it's bizarre, isn't it? When you're like, oh my goodness. Yeah, how? you stop and think. How did this happen? I know. So the Hubble telescope recently detected a black hole which appeared to be giving birth to stars. 
Becky, is this what we expect black holes to do? So this is something we call outflows or jets from supermassive black holes. And it really confuses people because the definition of a black hole is something so dense that not even light itself can escape. So when people hear about something coming off a black hole, it's very confusing. And it's not actually coming from the black hole itself when we talk about outflows or jets. So essentially, as you like chuck material in towards the regions of a black hole, obviously everything is fighting to get into that black hole in, in the fact that gravity is like pulling it inwards. But the material also heats up. It gets accelerated. It gets it, it goes up to huge speeds and it actually starts to glow. So radiation, like light, starts to come off this material, essentially. And you can get pressure from light. We talk about this like radiation pressure and like, like equipping spacecraft with solar sails. So instead of like wind particles hitting a sail, you've got light particles hitting a sail on a spacecraft in space and that can power it. So it, it exerts a pressure that pushes outwards if you have this material around a black hole that, that can heat up. And it's around the black hole and it's actually how we spot the majority of black holes as well. They're some of the brightest objects in the universe, which again is a bit of a, a weird one, isn't it? To think they're the brightest things, but it pushes outwards against uh, gravity pulling inwards essentially. And so if you actually chuck too much material in there, there's too much material that starts glowing that it actually starts to push back again. And you end up with this outflow from the black hole instead. It's basically, I like to call it a black hole burp. It's like you fed it too much and it's just got, no. <laughs> and that's what's happening. And actually what I study is how those black hole burps can stop a galaxy from forming stars. But what the Hubble Space Telescope observations, this, this team of scientists have found is that that burp is actually causing stars to form. James asked if two black holes can merge. Yes. So two black holes can merge and we have actually detected signals from two black holes merging. And these are not light signals, which is usually how we get anything from the universe, any information, whether it's visible light that we can see, or if it's radio waves or gamma rays or x-rays, they're all a form of light. But for merging black holes, we get gravitational waves, which is essentially like ripples through space itself. Einstein said that gravity essentially is like something massive curves space. So you can picture this if you think of like a trampoline or like a stretched bed sheet, right? And you, you put like a football in the middle of it and it'll, uh, you know, stretch your sheet out and it'll curve the trampoline or the, or the bed sheet, right? If you think about like removing that, you'll get like a shockwave, right? That'll it'll go through the trampoline or like bouncing it on the trampoline essentially. So if you have two black holes merging that are like spiraling around each other with, with this huge, huge effect because they're so dense, it does create these ripples that then we detect as like the squishing and, and stretching of space. And the last question we have here is, there's been some debate around if a ninth planet exists in our solar <laughs> system. Do you think there is another planet or could it be something else? Yeah, so this has been raging for years. I mean, even back to like the 1800s when Neptune was first discovered and Neptune's orbit was a little bit weird and they were like, maybe there's something beyond Neptune. And then of course they discovered Pluto and then they thought they'd solve that one. And then it turned out Pluto was, you know, like about the size of our moon and they realized it wouldn't be enough to 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 shift up Neptune's orbit. And then they realized that Pluto's orbit was weird. And then they discovered a load of things like Pluto that we're near Pluto, which is one of the reasons why Pluto got demoted as well. I'm sorry to the internet. They still haven't recovered <laughs> from that news. And all of those things have very strange orbits as well. So the idea is that there could be another very massive planet, like 30 times the mass of the Earth, something like that, beyond the orbit of Neptune that's sort of shepherding all these things into these weird orbits. And we haven't found anything. So it could be that it's so far away that it's so faint that we can't spot it. But there was a paper came out a few years ago that was like, maybe we can't see it. Maybe we can't find it because it's a black hole. And that's why. And it would be a black hole that would be about the size of a tennis ball, but it would be 30 times as heavy as, as the earth, just to give you an idea of the, the density of black holes, right? It would be squashed into. The idea that the solar system could have this just like pet black hole that's just like lurking around on the edges just makes me so happy. Like dog might be a man's best friend, but like a black hole in the solar system is a woman's best friend, in my opinion, <laughs> or at least mine. I mean, that's all we want in life is a black hole. That's all I've ever wanted in my life. Oh, well, I'm crossing my fingers for you. We are all trying to make adaptations in our own lives to climate change. And while we think about the threat to species, we often don't think about how animal populations are being altered by these extremes. Thor, in the face of extreme weathers like hurricanes, 
how have certain animals adapted? Oh, that is a marvelous question. And there's a really, really cool answer to it. This story comes to us from the Turks and Caicos Islands in the Caribbean and from a herpetologist named Colin Donahue, who was down there a few years ago studying these little anole lizards. And anole is a, a small lizard that's sort of a distant cousin to an iguana. And the idea behind this study was to go out and measure all of these lizards, and then they were going to remove move non-native rats from the island and see how the lizard population uh, responded. And so he had been out there with his team and they had caught a bunch of lizards and done all of these measurements. And then they went back to their respective universities. And two weeks later, two massive hurricanes swept across the Turks and Caicos Islands back to back. Category four, category five storms, winds reaching 175 miles per hour, you know, huge storms that flattened the vegetation and, you know, uprooted trees and all of this stuff. And so the damage was so severe, of course, that the rat project was put on an indefinite hold. But Colin realized that he was in a rare position to study something else. He could go back and study the effects of the hurricanes. Had any lizards survived? And if they had, was the post-hurricane population different from the population that he had just measured a few weeks before? So he cobbled together some funding and they all went back down there and found themselves in sort of a, a, a you know, scientific deja vu, repeating the exact same experiment they had just done six weeks earlier and learning that, in fact, that population was measurably different. The survivors of the storm were the lizards that had larger toe pads and strong front legs, which made a certain amount of sense intuitively. And in that if you are stuck in this windstorm trying to hold on, big sticky toe pads and strong legs would make sense. But they also had measurably shorter back legs, and that was a total mystery to Colin. But luckily, he had planned ahead for mysteries, and he had traveled down there with a leaf blower in his luggage. And he told me he had quite a conversation with the customs officer trying to explain why he was traveling with landscaping equipment for a scientific project. But he needed the leaf blower because he wanted to see how lizards behaved in hurricane force winds. And you can't be standing out there in a hurricane taking notes. So instead, he recreated a hurricane using the leaf blower on the porch of his hotel room and videotaped these lizards and their behavior and learned that, in fact, they do hold on with those big toe pads and those strong front legs. But as the wind speed increases, their back legs begin to slip off until finally their entire body is flapping like a flag in the wind. So those short back legs give the lizards an advantage because they reduce the amount of drag on their bodies and they allow them to cling to the sticks just a little bit longer. And that can be the difference in that severe weather event between life and death or between, if you will, uh, perishing and survival of the fittest. So he realized that what he had measured in that short span of time was not just you know some behavioral change or, or some plasticity giving the, the lizards the chance to adapt immediately. No, he had actually measured a small evolutionary step in action, natural selection playing out over the course of a single field season. Wow. I just I love the fact he took a leaf blower with him and was like, I'm gonna set up my own hurricane. Like this is this is why I love science. Like it's the hotel room for me. It's like, what did he put the do not disturb sign out? And he's just there on the balcony. I, yeah, and the people in the next room think, well, you know, I mean, it's one thing if someone has the TV on loud, but they're in there all day with a leaf blower. <laughs> You'd be like, what is going on next door? It's art. Oh, that is absolutely amazing. Much has changed for business owners, managers, and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988.
Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. I'm joined by four super scientists answering all your science questions and sharing their expertise. We've got DNA detective Gregor Larson, amazing astrophysicist Becky Smethurst, creative conservationist Thor Hansen, and well-being wonder Olivia Reams. And we're back to it with our mystery sound. <laughs> our first clue was, I'm currently fourth and on the rise. And our second clue is, I may be known for being quick on the ice and on the field, but I prefer the water. Gregor, do you have an idea of what those clues are giving you? Becky's response was so cool that I really hope it's her answer. <laughs> so we wind on Mars is what we're going for. So. Yeah, I mean, sure. I, and there's there's ice on Mars, right? Like the yeah. quicker on the water. Oh, it's just like a yeah, yeah. I'm back to the Velociraptor now. <laughs> <laughs> it's that time in the show where we put our experts' knowledge to the test, and in honor of it still being near-ish to the new year, I'm still writing 2021 as the date. That's my marker. The theme for this quiz is new beginnings. So Becky and Gregor, you're going to be team one, and Thor and Olivia, you're team two. This is a multiple choice quiz and you can confer within your teams, but there's no cross team collaboration. So let's see who is going to be the new year, new me champion. Let's go. So round one is called Nature Awakens. And this first question is for Becky and Gregor. As we speak, some animal species are in the depths of hibernation, getting through the cold dark months by slowing down or sleeping. And I wish... I could do the same, to be honest. Groundhogs famously used to predict the weather can sleep for up to five months each winter. Their physiology slows down, including their heart rate, which is normally between 80 to 100 beats per minute. How often does a groundhog's heart beat when it is hibernating? Is it A, 50 to 60 beats per minute, B, 20 to 30 beats per minute, or C, 5 to 10 beats per minute? Oh, well, I was first thought it was lower 10. than A. Yeah, I was thinking around 10, but I was trying to work out if that was a reasonable, like a 10 per minute, that's one every six seconds. Yes. That seems reasonable that, for a small sure. animal, right? Well, well that's my resting animal... heart rate. So, you know, that's that's probably <laughs> that's probably good. Amazing. Right. So C? Yeah. And the answer is C. Five hey. to 10 beats per minute. Trust your gut. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and their body temperature also drops from 37 degrees Celsius to two degrees Celsius. And oh, breathing wow. rate goes down from 16 breaths per minute to just two. So Jeez. they are very much switched off from the world, which we all probably wish we could do in winter at some point. Question two. So Olivia and Thor, we're over to you. A class of flies called periodical cicadas found in North America mature in the ground for a very long time before coming out into the open for mating. 2021 saw one of these awakenings from a group called Brood 10. But when will they next awaken? Will it be A, 2028, B, 2038 or C, 2048? Can we can we chime in and, and steal their point? You definitely can't. No cross team collaboration. And there's no, 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 no. already smiling like You're he knows stealing. the answer anyway. Yeah, people in North America, you'll you've got to up here. Yeah, I would say that you know in our parlance here, you just threw you threw that ball right over the plate. Uh, in baseball, we would hit that for a home run. Olivia, I think these are the 17 year cicadas. So that uh, with my math would put us at 2038. What do you think? I say let's go with that. And the answer is, of course, it's B. We've got ah. people from North America here. They're going to know. <laughs> so, yeah, periodical cicadas come out of the ground every 13 or 17 years, with Brood 10's next predicted emergence being 2038. And it's still unclear why periodical cicadas wait this long to come out to the surface. It's been theorised that their high numbers all at once might saturate predators, or they might come out when bird numbers are lower. So it's still a bit of a mystery why they wait so long. But when they come out, it's very noisy, I've heard, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're extremely noisy in their, their vast numbers. Yeah, all emerging at once, like a big party. Okay, so at the end of round one, it's even steadings. It's 1-1. It's one, one. So we're going into round two. Fresh, let's go. So round two is called Birth of the Universe. So Becky, you'll be hopefully liking this round. Question one, Becky and Gregor. 
It's thought that planet Earth was born around 4.5 billion years ago from a series of collisions. But how many years after this did it take for the first signs of life to appear? If we guess before, we get the multiple choice. (laughs) We get bonus points. Just just looking for an edge. (laughs) Well, I haven't got the terms and conditions here. So I'll give you the choices, but you can be quick to the mark. I'm sure you will be. So A is 500 million years after the 4.5 billion. B, 800 million years. Or C, 1 billion years. Becky? I mean, One, I think it's a billion. It is. Like three, you're nodding. Yeah, you yeah, yeah, three and a half billion, right? That's your. Yeah, that's, your that's, more... that's the number I had in my head right. too. The answer is, I've got B. No. <laughs> no. I've got B. I said the first signs of life, which were thought to be microscopic organisms, existed yeah, 3.7 billion years ago. They were found in rocks that were marked 3.7 billion years old. That's just rude. I know. I, just... I don't know. The confidence intervals on that dating, I think it's probably three Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, what's the difference? Three points up. Yeah, you know, the same thing. So we just missed out on that one. But I love the confidence. So question two, we're coming over to Thor and Olivia. So when a star is born, not in the Hercules kind of way, clouds of hydrogen called nebulae interact together, producing clumps which heat to 10 million degrees Celsius. Once this high temperature is reached inside a young stellar object, nuclear fusion, which is the joining of two nuclei to make a new atom, transitions it into stardom, with hydrogen atoms fusing to become helium. What element inside a star signals it's most near to the end of its lifespan? Is it A, carbon, B, magnesium, or C, iron? Ooh, Olivia, I don't, can we, we can't ask, we can't ask Becky this question. <laughs> yes, we can. <laughs> Becky, <laughs> I'll ask Becky at the end to probably clarify on the answer for us. <laughs> I don't know why, but I'm tempted, I'm tempted to say carbon. What do I, you think? I am, I'm with you a hundred percent. That was my, my gut reaction to, which yeah. is not based on much, but uh, we'll go for it. <laughs> well, the answer is C, iron. iron. So that's yeah, the heavier stuff. Yeah. When mm-hmm. atoms fuse with a star to eventually form iron, this creates an inert core and it doesn't release energy for the star to keep burning and leads to stellar death. Becky, what happens when a star dies? Yeah, I mean, essentially what happens when you hit iron is that you have to put more energy in to fuse iron together than you get out from nuclear fusion. So there's just nowhere for the star to go at that point. And so when the star dies, essentially there's no force pushing outwards against the gravity pulling inwards and you get this collapse inwards. There you go, answered by the expert on that one. But yeah, we don't want iron at the core of the star. That's not a good sign. It's not a good sign. So at the end of that round, we're still on 1-1. So... Not on loss, nothing gained. Going into the final round now, which is called Humans and Habits. Becky and Gregor, question one is for you. It's thought the human brain is made up of about 86 billion neurons and these cells do not divide. However, in the 1990s, stem cells were found in the brain with one pool located in the region important for forming new memories called the hippocampus. But how many of these new neurons are thought to be born each day in an adult human brain? Is the answer A, 700, B, 2,700, or C, 27,000? I don't like the neuroscientists. They're the only ones that can give us a run for our money with the big numbers. I feel like for them to put such a small number in there, it has to be quite small. This is about as far away from either you or me as, yeah. as possible, right? So, Do we just, just go right down shoot? the middle? Ooh, not a bad idea. 2,700. The answer is A. Uh, Becky, you were close. 70. That was close. Yeah, based <laughs> on the data using C14 carbon dating, which essentially time tags DNA due to different levels of C14 in the atmosphere, it's thought 700 new neurons are added to this part of the brain each day. And that represents a turnover of about 1.75% per year in this little section of the brain. And this is drastically smaller to, say, our blood cell turnover, where millions of new cells are produced on the daily. Right, question two. Olivia and Thor, you could steal this here. At New Year's, many people set New Year's resolutions to signal a new beginning in terms of changing their behaviours. A large study of 60,000 people looking at prompting showing up to the gym consistently found which method to be most effective. Was it A, setting a plan in advance of when and where the people would work out? B, 
giving people an incentive to return to the gym after they'd missed a workout. Or C, signing an exercise commitment pledge. I would. I would go with A, um, setting setting a time and place to go and do the exercise. What do you think? I, I would go with that too. If you're setting a time and place and making a plan and coordinating with others, you've made a commitment, by gosh. So the answer is B. Hey. What? No. <laughs> yeah. The study this study was published, I think, in like a month ago, December 2021. And it found that while various methods of planning, reminders and incentives to keep working out did work, rewarding people for going back to the gym after they'd missed a workout came out as the best for increasing the number of gym visits and maintaining this change after the study finished. So that means that we're on a tie break and we do have a tie break question. Of course, in these instances, we have a tie break. And our intern who wrote the tie break, you know, they didn't hear me correctly when I said the quiz was called New Beginnings and they heard me call it New Innings. So the tie break question is, in the 2021-2022 Ashes series, how many (laughs) runs did England score across all five tests against Australia? So this is... A ballpark, it's going to be a number. Whoever gets closest to the number of runs that England got, they 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 claim victory. 2,000. Okay, so Gregor's thinking 2,000. Becky, are you going with that? Oh, we have to say the same. Yeah, yeah I, would have, I would have gone 1,600, like 400 times. Yeah, so. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Thor but there, was, there was five tests, though. Oh, there's five tests, not four. Yeah, yeah, so 2,000 is great. Cool. Gosh, I, I don't know. <laughs> We'll do the uh, we'll just do the sleaze move here and and add one to yours and see the if the price is right maneuver. Yeah, really, that's exactly right. You would yeah. assume yeah. England did better than we think they did. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a two thousand versus a two thousand and one. The answer is one thousand nine hundred and thirty nine. Becky and Gregor stole it at the last yes. minute. So yeah, that's oh. how many England got. Australia this time got two thousand five hundred and fifty four. Oh, so it led to a 4-0 victory for the Aussies. But at the end of the quiz, that means we have champion supreme Becky and Gregor. Team Oxford. I've won. <laughs> team That's right. Nice. Can we pause this so I can tweet that right now? Just <laughs> lay claim to that victory. Claim the victory. Olivia, to a question for you. We're talking about procrastination now. So yeah, I definitely need this one. <laughs> when we take on a big project, we often find ourselves raring to go. We get a plan together. We buy the new stationery. I love to get a new diary. But when it comes to actually doing the project, we stall Olivia, why do we procrastinate? And Yvonne asked, how do we stop the loop of like procrastinating and worrying about work? So procrastinating more, how can we break that cycle? Procrastination comes from the Latin word procrastinare, which means putting off until tomorrow. Basically, it's this needless delay, even though we know that it's in our best interest to act now. And there are some strategies for helping you to overcome procrastination. One of the strategies to tackle procrastination is to simply practice tolerating that initial discomfort. Sometimes when we sit down to work and we have a task in front of us, we may be having feelings or experiencing feelings like boredom, frustration, whatever negative feelings you're experiencing, just to notice them and learn to tolerate them. Our impulse might be to try to get away from these feelings, to get away from the boredom, to get away from the frustration. We want to run away from the task at hand, but simply practice tolerating these initial feelings of discomfort and they will go away because these feelings are transitory. Another great strategy is to choose to tap into a positive emotion. All of us at any given time have a landscape of rich emotions that we can tap into, like curiosity. So being curious about a task, tap into one of those positive emotions when you are working on your task, and this will make it much easier to get going and to stick with it. And finally, another strategy that you can use to help you to overcome delay and procrastination is to do it badly. Yeah, I love that. I always do a draft zero of everything that I do and no one ever sees it except for me and it just gets me started. I found that like just redefining what you mean by a draft really helped. Like Mm. a draft to me at first was like something that I could share with other people. 
And I realized, no, that's not what a draft is. A draft to me is like word vomit on a page. Yes. <laughs> and then I can finally do something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like just get it out of your system. And then it's like, I can then sort that later. But just getting over that barrier to start, I think is is so important. Okay, so Gregor, an article was published recently suggesting that when it comes to sheep and goats in a region of Turkey, humans may not have intentionally meant to domesticate these animals. This is a bit about what we were talking about before. So have we ended up now with animals that we didn't maybe mean to have domesticated? Yeah, I think that it, there's this idea that we're not terribly humble as a species. We tend to be very self motivated and we tend to think of ourselves on the top of whatever thing that we're categorizing and as a result of that when we look to the past we tend to have this very interesting perspective which assumes that everything had a reason or a purpose of getting there and that we were always acting in a very intelligent fashion in order to get to where we are now which was a very good idea at the very at, at the start of everything and this this kind of presentist perspective is a bias that kind of really undermines what was actually happening throughout tons of history, which is full of nothing really but accident and happenstance and opportunity. So there's a really cool idea that some colleagues of mine put out a few years ago where they refer to these things as labor traps. And rather than this kind of presentist perspective where it's like we started domesticating plants because we knew it would be good for us and we wanted larger seeds and we spent more time focusing on just a small handful of things. Instead, they were like, well, once you start in investing in things, you then become more reliant upon it. And what happens is there's this whole really interesting trajectory, which starts off, and you can apply this to just about every aspect of your life, where when you first encounter something, you're often kind of wary of it. Then you become sort of accustomed to it, but you don't really pay that much attention to it. Then you start becoming a little bit more reliant upon it. And after a little while, you become wholly dependent upon it completely. And that's probably true of the relationship that you're in right now, or your relationship with any uh, foodstuffs that you eat, or with your exercise routine, or anything else. And this is probably the same trajectory that was taking place with a lot of early domestic plants and animals as well, where initially at the site that you're talking about called Ashikli Hoyuk in Turkey, where at the very bottom layers, you see people who were taking advantage of a wide range of different resources from a huge catchment area around the site. And then through time, there becomes this increasing reliance on very a small handful of sheep and goat. And that took the process took three, four, five hundred years. So it's not like somebody looked multiple generations in the future and said, we want to only be exclusively eating sheep and goat. And we think that that's going to be the best thing for humanity going forward, because those kinds of decisions aren't operating on the sorts of timescales that are visible within the archaeological record. So, yeah, this is I think we are better served by looking at these processes in a much more accidental and happenstance rather than always assuming that we were making brilliant decisions as a species all the way back and we can look back at our ancestors and go well done we really love this peanut butter and jelly sandwich (laughs) yeah i mean the brain has very much a present bias as well so we're not really thinking years down the line it's like what could i do right now it wouldn't have been priority to think years down the line you're thinking when's my next meal gonna happen as that relationship together probably led to a lot of the domesticated as we say animals that we have today exactly You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Julia Ravey, and four scientific specialists, Thor Hansen, Olivia Reams, Gregor Larson, and Becky Smethurst, who are sharing their nuggets of knowledge and answering all your questions. We now have the fourth and final clue of our mystery sound competition. So we had, I'm currently fourth and on the rise. I may be known for being quick on the ice and on the field, but I prefer the water. And now another one is... It would take me 6.5 hours to get from Cambridge to London. Olivia, who do you think that is? Um, six, 6.5 hours from Cambridge to London. Uh, I've said Mars and a Velociraptor. It would take six and a half hours to get from Cambridge to London. It is clearly neither of those things. Well, after you said that this this thing liked water and that Saturn, flo- Saturn floats, I was going with another another planet. I thought we were going to be on the Saturn next, Saturn. but I guess not. A cat. I'm still going with a cat. <laughs> no. Okay, I'm going with chicken. The meow. Yeah, I'm going with a chicken too. Yay. As we record this episode, the $10 billion James Webb telescope is moving towards its final destination. So Becky, what are we hoping to see with this telescope? And do you think it might be able to tell us a bit more about whether or not there is other life forms out there? 
Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the main science goals of the James Webb Space Telescope or JWST as us cool kids call it. Yeah. So what James Webb has been designed to do is look at infrared light. And this is the key thing with James Webb and why it needs to be so far away and have a giant tennis court sized sun shield to protect it from infrared light from the sun. But what it'll be able to do is see stuff that the Hubble Space Telescope can't. It physically can't see it because it looks invisible light. And the thing is, the light from the very furthest stars and galaxies away from us, the light that was emitted at the very beginning of the universe and is currently still traveling towards us, it has been redshifted by the expansion of the universe. So space is expanding and it essentially drags out the light wave as it goes and stretches it to longer wavelengths, which are redder. But this has been stretched out so much that when it was emitted as visible light, it is now infrared light. So Hubble has no chance of seeing it at all. It can't even pick it up. It's not that it's just faint. It's just that it it can't detect it. So this is what James Webb has been designed to do is to see the light from the first stars and galaxies that there ever was in the universe, essentially. Detect the oldest light there is, essentially. And so that's what I'm really excited for. It also might answer sort of like a chicken or an egg question, speaking of evolution, (laughs) whether the like... Did the first stars form, make a black hole, and then that become the first supermassive black hole that happened to then fall and sink to the center of a galaxy because it was the heaviest thing? Or did like a supermassive black hole collapse from the first gas in the universe and then a galaxy of stars form around it? But then the other thing that it can do because it works in the infrared, which is like a, a Billy bonus, I guess, is that a lot of the like fingerprints of different molecules in terms of like the light they absorb or emit, a lot of the key ones for life are in the infrared. So water specifically leaves a fingerprint on infrared light so that we know that it's there. So the plan is for what we call exoplanets, planets that orbit other stars in our galaxy, when they pass in front of the star that they orbit, we can take the tiny amount of starlight that happened to pass through the skinny bit of atmosphere around them, isolate it and work out what molecules are present in that atmosphere and whether water is present there and other indicators of life, biomarkers, biosignatures as we call them. And yeah, we could be in a position in like five years time that we're like, this is the most habitable place for life that we've ever seen beyond Earth. That's pretty cool. Over the past few years, there has been a buzz about saving the bees. These insects are under threat due to disease, climate change and habitat loss. Thor, why are bees so important and why do they need saving? Oh, oh! how much time do we have? This is such a great question. We rely upon bees for so much more than we think because they are so essential to the pollination systems that fuel wild plants as well as crop plants. Probably the most famous statistic that people use about bees and our reliance upon them has to do with one out of every three bites is a rough you know, guess. Uh, in in terms of the food that we eat is reliant at some stage upon bees for pollination, right? And so that's a great statistic, but it doesn't really tell us all that much about what kinds of food they give us or what food would be like if we didn't have bees. And one of the, the ways that you can get this across is you can go and try to have a meal that involves no bees. And i conducted a little experiment once myself with a very famous recipe around the world now, the McDonald's Big Mac hamburger. And I decided that I would go to a McDonald's shop and I would order one of these famous double uh, cheeseburger sandwiches. And then I would dissect the Big Mac and I would remove all of the ingredients of the Big Mac that relied upon bees for pollination. And after I did this, took all the sesame seeds off the bun and I took the pepper and I took off the, of course, pickles and tomatoes and the lettuce and the sauces and so forth and separated everything out. I 
realizing, yes, I could still have uh, the two all beef patties in the sandwich because the cows could have been fed solely upon grasses. I could have had the buns without the sesame seeds because the buns themselves were from grains, which are grasses, and those are wind pollinated. But pretty much everything else on that sandwich, including everything that made the food interesting or flavorful, was uh, a product at some point of bee pollination. And so what I learned from that experiment was that, yes, we could still eat something in a world without bees, but our food would be extremely dull, less nutritious, and we'd have to just eat what we could. And there'd be no Big Macs. So that is a lesson to us all. There wouldn't be no salad anyway, which is probably the healthy part of that as well. <laughs> Take off all the health and that's what you're left with. No, we've got to save the bees. Right, we're going to do a quick fire round now. One question each. Olivia, we had one in from Naomi about motivation, who asked, why can we feel motivated to do something like a social activity, but not a work activity? So feeling motivated to see our friends, but not like doing work. What's the difference? It could be in the difference in pleasure levels between the two. So when we're thinking about meeting our friends and going out somewhere fun, then of course, that's an enjoyable activity. You like to do that. But sometimes with tasks that we may have to do in life, some can be more difficult and time consuming than others. So again, it comes back to those unpleasant emotions that we're feeling and hence the lack of motivation possibly. So Gregor, animals are a huge symbol in many traditions and celebrations, and we don't even question them being there. But why do we have an Easter bunny? My favorite bit about the Easter bunny is that the tradition of Easter starts in Germany, comes over to the UK, but is associated with hares. So it was the Easter hare to start. And the hares as were also European and were introduced to the UK. Then the hare gets replaced by the rabbit, for reasons we're actually working on right now and trying to work out when and how that happened. And then the rabbit then takes over and becomes part of this indelible part of this whole Easter tradition, which also includes chickens, which have nothing to do with the UK either. So everything we know about Easter in the UK is nothing is actually whatsoever to do with the UK, but it's all been these component parts which have been pulled from everywhere else. It's great. And we're claiming the tradition is ours. And it's It's ours. It's definitely not. (laughs) Becky, you wrote a book, Space, 10 Things You Should Know, What is your favorite bite of space knowledge you think we all should know? I'm going to go for one that has stuck with me since I was eight years old and possibly was the reason I became an astrophysicist. And that is if you could find a tank of water or ocean big enough, Saturn would float because its density is less than water. Oh, yeah. And Saturn's my favorite planet, like by far. You can find it. (laughs) That is amazing. That visual is just like, I'm seeing like a huge bathtub with like (laughs) slip, slip top bath sat on the top and finally thought over to you you wrote a book all about how seeds conquered the planet which seed has the most fascinating method of dispersal Ooh, oh boy <laughs> it is hard to narrow it down to a favorite but the seed of the javan cucumber which was well known long before anyone ever figured out what plant it was coming from because the seed travels so far. And the design of the seed is such that it actually led to a sort of aircraft uh, design that is now the, the basis for the stealth bomber, one of the most dangerous things humans have ever come up with, this single-winged aircraft. The Javan cucumber also has a single wing, this thin, filmy membrane around the seed that stretches out and allows it to drift upon the slightest breeze for kilometers. And so sailing ships going through the southeastern Asian archipelagos would have these seeds dropping upon the on the ships now and then. They knew all about the seed long before anyone ever realized that they were coming from these particular plants hidden up in the rainforest canopy, these lianas up there that were dropping these seeds out into the wind. So the seed travels so far that people knew about the seed before they knew about the plant. Wow, that is a reputation. That is an absolute reputation. That is all the science we have time for this week. What an absolutely packed show. But before we go, we have to reveal what on earth that mystery sound is. And here is a final teaser for all of you. If I was pink, I'd be giving you the clues. Pink panther. The answer is a panther meowing. 
Yay. It was a cat. Yeah, you were spot on. So they're the largest of the lesser cats, so they can meow and pair. They're the mascot for the Carolina Panthers in the NFL, mm. who are the fourth in the league, and their song is called On the Rise. And also the Nottingham Panthers hockey team, so On the Ice. Panthers like to swim, and they can sprint up to 50 miles an hour, but their steady pace is about 10 miles an hour. So that would make the 65-mile trip from Cambridge to London take a pretty long time. And we must leave it there. Thank you very much for listening and for sending in your questions. And thanks to our wonderful panel, Becky, Olivia, Gregor and Thor. Next week, we'll be exploring the future of transplant surgery. Join us to see where technology and biology might be taking us. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute for Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Julia Ravey. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.